Good evening and welcome to Resistance TV. It's Wednesday the 9th of March and it's 7pm. My name's Sean Bloor and I'm going to be your host for this evening. Unfortunately, Chris is, um, is still having problems with his Wi-Fi and uh, he's expecting to have his garden dug up in the next couple of weeks. So hopefully he'll be back with us in March uh, later on this month. And um, tonight we've got Rod Driver with us with his series Elephant in the Room. Now, we've not spoken to Rod for quite a while uh, since before Christmas. So it's great to have Rod back on the show. And tonight we're going to be discussing a topic that should that it, that it is on hot on everybody's lips at the moment to do with exaggerated threats um, about pop propaganda in the mainstream corporate news media. Um, and also um, with the Ukraine and Russia conflict going on at the moment, this is an, import, an important uh, topic to be discussing. So I'd like to welcome Rod to the show. Hi, Sean. Hi, Rod. Um, do you just want to introduce yourself to people because we may have some new um, people on here watching tonight uh, that may not know you. So um, over to you. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, I'm a sort of semi-retired uh, academic and I specialise in uh, uh, trying to understand modern day propaganda. So that's uh, uh, mostly in Britain and the United States, and it's in relation to war, but it's also in relation to corporate crime, economics, the failings of the media, failings of democracy, uh, human rights abuses, and a sort of wide range of topics that most people don't normally associate uh, propaganda with. So uh, tonight, we're going to focus on more obvious types of propaganda, and I'm going to talk about uh, what are called exaggerated threats. And these have played a really, really uh, big part of uh, British and American um, propaganda uh, ever since 1945. So we're going to talk a little bit about the propaganda in the second half of the 20th century, which was where everyone was told there could be an imminent communist invasion. And then much more recently, there have been the exaggerated threats of weapons of mass destruction and the exaggerated threat of terrorism. And then once we've done those, well, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, Rod. Uh, once we've done those, I'm just going to talk a little bit about uh, a genuine threat and the war that's just recently broken out uh, in Ukraine. So, fire away, Sean. Okay. Um, so I'm going to be busy in the um, chat room. So I'm going to go over to do the moderating in there. And if anybody would like to leave a question for Rod, then um, I'll be coming back to him towards the end of his presentation. And we can, I'll put those questions to Rod. Um, we probably will run a bit over time tonight because there's a lot to get through. And I'm sure people have got a lot of burning questions uh, to ask Rod on the current conflict and how it's been reported. Um, people being silenced, um, press companies who were being um, taken off air like Russia Today, for example, um, and other Ukrainian TV stations that have been taken down. Um, so, Rod, I'll leave it over to you and I shall see you later on. Thanks very much. OK, so if we start with the sort of historical um, exaggerated threats, I came across a great quote. Uh, going back some years, this was by Hitler's second in command, Hermann Goering, and he said, naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine policy. And it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship 
or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. The people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country. And I think that is a better description of pretty much everything that's happened uh, in the last mm, 75 years than any, any other quote I've come across in relation to war and propaganda. So we're going to begin by talking about terrorism. Not only will I talk about the way they're exaggerated as threats, but I'll also talk about what really goes on uh, internationally uh, with some of these issues. So uh, the, C the NSA analyst, Edward Snowden, uh, actually gave a, a presentation a few years ago where he described terrorism as what's known as a cover for action. And so that means that uh, governments, particularly the American government, are looking for ways to justify their crimes overseas. And terrorism is probably the best excuse ever created for unlawful government action. So the war on terror has no definable end and potentially the whole world uh, is the battleground. So if we go back in time to uh, 1979, which is where American and British um, support for terrorists, uh, which is um, still ongoing today, where it really began. So the CIA, that's the America's intelligence agency, British intelligence agency, MI6, uh, Saudi financiers and the Pakistani intelligence agency, the ISI, all worked together to set up terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. And their goal was to destabilize Afghanistan and to suck the Russians into a, a long war there, which was described as Russia's Vietnam. And the terrorist training camps, as well as providing training in fighting and weapons and so on, also indoctrinated people into extremist forms of uh, Islam. Now, 10 years later, the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, but all of the people who'd been trained to fight in Afghanistan, they then spread out into neighboring countries. They became Al-Qaeda. They uh, set up subgroups, they merged with other groups, they split off into other groups. At one point they became ISIS, at an earlier point they'd become Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and so on. So there are lots and lots of different spin-off groups from these original terrorists created in Australia. And they fought uh, to destabilize governments in Yugoslavia and more recently in Libya uh, and Syria, among others. Now, one of the problems with... Uh, training terrorists is you get something called blowback. And that's the sort of unintended consequences of your actions. So the World Trade Center bombing in 1993 uh, was carried out by people who had uh, sort of evolved from these earlier terrorists. The 2005 London attacks were also connected to people who, who sort of span off from those groups. And also the 2016 Orlando nightclub um, bombing and the 2017 Manchester bombing. Uh, that's been analyzed in some detail. And that was carried out by people who had very close connections to our other intelligence service, MI5, who were using them to destabilize Libya. So we've got a, a system of intelligence agencies in US and Britain. They're training, they're arming, they are financing, and they are also protecting terrorists. And they're being used to destabilize 
other countries, to create war in other countries and to undermine governments in other countries. And British and American protection for these people makes it extremely difficult for other governments to investigate when there are problems. So in Luxor in 1997, there was a big massacre. The Egyptian government complained that they couldn't investigate properly because the terrorists were being protected by the UK. In 2001, something similar in Macedonia uh, involved protection by the US. And with the 9-11 terrorist attacks in 2001 in the United States, even the FBI complained that they were not able to properly investigate because some of the terrorists appeared to have links to US intelligence agencies. Now, as well as training and funding and arming these people, uh, America also protects them by giving them a home after they've been useful as terrorists. So Florida is considered to be the safe haven of choice for former terrorists who've been useful to the United States. So most notoriously, there were a couple of um, terrorists who brought down a Cuban airliner in 1976, killing 73 people, and the United States then allowed them to live in the United States and protected them. Now, it's important to understand that whilst the terrorist activity uh, in the Middle East and other countries is extremely serious, in terms of the threat of terrorism in America and Britain, the threat is hugely exaggerated. And uh, some years after the, the 2001 9-11 attacks, a number of people did some calculations and said, actually, you're more likely to drown in the bathtub or to die from bee stings uh, and, and other very, very uh, sort of freakish ways of, uh, of dying than you are to die in a terrorist attack. And in fact, in 2005, the FBI stated that there were no al-Qaeda, what they call sleeper cells, so groups of terrorists uh, in the US. And then in 2009, the CIA admitted that at that time, there were less than 100 al-Qaeda operatives in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So the whole thing had been massively exaggerated. Now, since 2001, when Britain and America have destroyed um, uh, Libya and parts of Syria, and there's, uh, there's ongoing fighting in Iraq, uh, the scale of terrorism in those regions has increased dramatically. Now, one of the things the mainstream press never talks about is state-sponsored terrorism. So if you think of terrorism as using violence and fear to achieve political goals, then it becomes reasonably obvious that modern warfare is simply a version of terrorism. It's sort of a government's version of terrorism. So to somebody being being murdered, it doesn't really make much difference to them whether it's a suicide bomber or it's a stealth bomber uh, who's murdering them. Uh, both leave the uh, leave the victims dead or in many cases maimed and injured. Now governments make a point of saying, well, we're different from terrorists. We don't target civilians, but actually that's just very clever propaganda because. Uh, it's known that the way Britain and America go about fighting their wars will inevitably lead to uh, the, the deaths of civilians on a huge scale. So the fact that they're claiming they don't deliberately target them doesn't make any difference. Uh, to my way of thinking, what our governments do overseas with their war crimes is every bit as bad as what terrorists do. And because of the, the way that our 
government and the media uh, present terrorism, the government has an excuse to come up with all sorts of oppressive laws at home. So people will have noted that in the last 20 years, Britain and America have introduced secret surveillance, arrest without trial, indefinite detention, secret courts, and particularly in the US, they've legalized state torture and kidnapping, as we've seen with Guantanamo Bay. And Amnesty International in 2017 made a statement about this, and they said, that uh, our governments have rushed through a raft of disproportionate and discriminatory laws, eroded the rule of law, enhanced executive powers, peeled away judicial controls, restricted freedom of expression, and exposed everyone to unchecked government surveillance, dismantling hard-won human rights protections. EU governments are using counter-terrorism measures to consolidate draconian powers and strip away human rights under the guise of defending them. We are in danger of creating societies in which liberty becomes the exception and fear the rule. And I think that's a good description of how terrorism is actually used by our governments back home. It's mostly used as a justification to give themselves ever more powers and to take away freedoms that ordinary people have had in the, in the past. OK, so that's the exaggerated threat of, of terrorism. So now I'm going to talk about the exaggerated threat of weapons of mass destruction. So some of you will remember that in 2003, there were all sorts of newspaper headlines saying that Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq, had weapons of mass destruction and they were ready to attack us within 45 minutes. And this was one of the key justifications for the invasion and destruction of Iraq. And then we're also told that Iran and North Korea uh, are scary, scary threats because they might be developing nuclear weapons. And in fact, North Korea has developed nuclear weapons. And then we were also told that one of the justifications for attacking Syria was that the Syrian leader Assad was using chemical weapons. And that's a red line that he's crossed. And therefore, we have to go and attack him. Well, of course, all of this is smoke and mirrors. It's just propaganda, again, to exaggerate the threat. So let's have a little look at what's really going on. So we'll start with nuclear weapons, which are actually really the only weapons of mass destruction that are actually used in any meaningful sense. So the US dropped two bombs at the end of World War II on Japan, destroying Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Then shortly after that, Russia, Britain, France and China developed nuclear weapons. And then very slowly over the next few decades, four other countries have acquired them. That's India and Pakistan. North Korea, as I just mentioned, and Israel. So in total, there's about 13,000 warheads, each one of which is capable of destroying a city. The vast majority of them are uh, belong to the United States and, and Russia. Now, it's important to recognize that, as with many other topics that we discuss, there's a huge set of double standards in relation to nuclear weapons. So in 1970, all of the nuclear weapon states and many other countries signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Now, it has two important parts. The first is that those governments that already have nuclear weapons will actively work to completely eliminate them. And then the second part is that those governments that don't have them will not obtain them.
Now, whenever you see a discussion about this in the media, they only ever talk about the second part. They will say that some other country, whether it's Iran or any other country that might be attempting to acquire them, is uh, not sticking to the treaty. And they never discuss the fact that actually those countries wouldn't have signed that part of the treaty if they thought that America and Britain and Russia and China and so on were not intending to get rid of their own nuclear weapons. So there's complete hypocrisy. And at the moment, uh, the nations that already have them, particularly the United States, are in trying to develop an entirely new generation of nuclear weapons. They call them bunker busters. So they're intended to be smaller. But it's important to understand that actually their destructive power would be very similar to the power of the ones that were used in World War II. So still capable of causing immense damage. The other thing to understand is that countries like Iran and North Korea, uh, you remember they were labeled as part of the axis of evil along with Iraq some years ago before the United States destroyed Iraq. So those countries and the leaders of those countries and the people of those countries have seen what America does to any country that cannot defend itself. And so they recognize that the only way to, to deter an attack by the United States is to de develop their own nuclear deterrent. It's the only possible deterrent against a, a US invasion. And uh, So a number of commentators talk about what would happen if Iran and in the past North Korea were to develop them. And they say, oh, they might attack us, you know, for no reason. Well, in fact, all the evidence is that the leaders of those countries are not insane. They're not mad. They understand exactly what's going on. And they know that if they were to initiate an attack, that would be national suicide because every other nuclear weapon state would immediately retaliate and destroy the nation that fired first. So they're not going to attack us. They have no reason to attack us. And they're not insane. The other thing to understand about nuclear weapons is that we have come much closer than most people realize to using them. So some people will have heard of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, again, in the mainstream media, that's presented as this very sort of scary period of time where the Russians put nuclear missiles in Cuba to aim them at the United States. What the mainstream media rarely mention is that the Russians were actually doing this as a retaliation because the Americans had put nuclear missiles in Turkey pointing at Russia. So it was the Americans who were the aggressors and the Russians who were responding to that. And in fact, we came very, very close to nuclear missiles being launched from a Russian submarine. In fact, the order was given by, uh, by the Russians to launch those missiles. But in order for the missiles to be launched, three senior people on board the submarine all had to agree and one of the three senior people refused to give the go-ahead to fire the, uh, the nuclear torpedo. So it was never fired. So, but we came very, very close. And for this reason, many experts are in favor of the complete elimination of, uh, of nuclear weapons. Okay, so I'll talk a little bit about chemical and biological weapons. So actually they go back centuries. So the idea of poisoning a well with a dead animal is a very early form of biological warfare. And there's documented records showing that arsenic smoke, which would be a form of chemical warfare, was used as long ago as 400 BC. And in the modern era, destroying somebody's sanitation system is actually a, a variation on biological uh, warfare. So disease breaks out 
uh, and um, and people can die of diseases. And particularly if they can't get medicines, uh, then that's a very dangerous situation. So America and Britain research both types of weapons. Uh, they claim that it's only for defensive purposes, but they will not allow inspectors, independent inspectors, to go and see what they're doing at their research labs. So it seems highly unlikely that what they're doing is only for defensive purposes. It is most likely that they are also developing weapons, both chemical and biological, that they might one day use in future. But we can never know for sure. Now, that, as with many other things, there's a great deal of hypocrisy. So if we look at um, chemical weapons, go back historically, Winston Churchill, uh, former prime minister of uh, Britain, uh, was actually all in favour of using poison gas to poison the natives in many of Britain's colonies. And if you come a little bit further forward in time to uh, America's war on Vietnam, they used chemical weapons a great deal. They used napalm, which uh, was this very unpleasant chemical that burned intensely. They used Agent Orange as a defoliant. They used poison gas to kill livestock and people. They used rice-killing herbicides. And in particular, they used um, something called dioxin, which is believed to have caused large numbers of birth defects uh, in Vietnam. Now, in 1984, American soldiers were given compensation for their exposure to some of these uh, uh, chemicals. But compensation has never been offered to the people of Vietnam. And then much more recently, Again, we see America using white phosphorus. So again, another material that burns very intensely. And also Britain and America using depleted uranium, which again is believed to be causing birth defects, uh, particularly in uh, places like uh, Iraq. So if you look at what are the real weapons of mass destruction in the world in the, in the sort of present day, it's actually bullets and bombs. They hack off limbs, they cause brain damage, they cause paralysis, they mutilate hundreds of thousands of people in war zones. And uh, many people have observed throughout the years that actually chemical weapons like cyanide would in fact cause much less suffering. So we've got conventional bombs and missiles that are used to destroy entire cities. And then all over the world, the, the weapons that cause the greatest suffering worldwide are small arms, so small guns that you... Uh, just holding your hands. So bullets and bombs are the true weapons of mass destruction. So it makes absolutely no sense to accept the mass carnage that we see in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria and elsewhere from ordinary bullets and bombs and say, hey, that's fine. But then to reject chemical weapons as something altogether worse. It just isn't true. So clearly, the idea of chemical weapons is being used as a propaganda tool where if our leaders and our media say, oh, some leader in another country is using a chemical weapon, that's something that's so terrible, we have to go and attack them. And it's just nonsense. So we need to really be questioning and critical when we are bombarded with this propaganda uh, in this way. If we look at whether or not any of these could be used by terrorists, it's quite tricky. So biological weapons are incredibly difficult to handle. So they've almost never been used. So in 2001, uh, five people in the United States were killed by anthrax. And it's believed this came from a US research lab of all places. 
So it's never really, biological weapons have never been used for terrorism. Chemical weapons have been used. So for example, on the Tokyo underground in 1995, sarin gas was released and it killed 12 people and it injured quite a few. But actually those effects are no worse than exploding an ordinary bomb uh, on a train. So they don't really justify the term weapons of mass destruction. And in fact, before 2003, the term WMD was rarely used. And it seems fairly clear to me it's actually a propaganda term which is intended to confuse nuclear weapons with something like chemical weapons. So if you mention the word weapons of mass destruction, I think most people picture a mushroom cloud and the instant destruction of a city. Whereas, in fact, what we're talking about most of the time is actually chemical weapons that really don't have that destructive uh, capability at all. So, again, a hugely exaggerated threat. OK, now, the reason I'm doing the order of things as I'm doing is because I'm now going to talk about the exaggerated threat of a communist invasion in the second half of the 20th century. And that leads into the final part where I'm going to talk about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. So if we uh, sort of go back to 1945, immediately after the Second World War, much of Eastern Europe was occupied by Russia. And that group of countries became known as the Soviet Union, and they had an economic and political system that was labelled communism. Now, some experts would debate whether that was actually communism, but for, for the purposes of tonight's presentation, let's just say it's a, a communist system. And then for the following 45 years, right up until 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union disintegrated, uh, we were bombarded in Britain, America and many other countries on a regular basis with propaganda saying that an invasion by the communists is imminent. And this, the propaganda was everywhere. We were told that if a nuclear uh, bomb should be falling, we should shelter under, ta under a table. People actually bought fallout shelters and put them in the garden. There were posters saying communism saps free will. And other posters had slogans with better dead than red, where red is the sort of slang term for being communist and so on. But in fact, we've been able to analyze the declassified files. So these are files that were classified at the time, but have now been made available to the public. And they show very clearly that the threat of a, a communist invasion was hugely exaggerated for that whole period. So early on, we were often being told about what they called the bomber gap or the missile gap, which meant the Russians had many more bombers or missiles than we did. And therefore, we had to spend lots of money and buy lots of uh, aeroplanes and bombers and uh, lots of missiles and stuff. But in fact, the gap was always the other way around. The United States always had many more bombers and missiles right up until the, a very kind of end point uh, when actually the Russians started to catch up. So it was exaggerated for many, many uh, years. And the American um, former Secretary of Defense in the 1960s, Robert McNamara, actually admitted the whole thing was hugely exaggerated to increase the US military budget. And there were big investigations in the US Congress in the 70s and 80s, which confirmed this uh, had been going on for many years. And in fact, one, uh, I think it was a former general at the time, said the most critical special operations mission we have today is to persuade the American people that the communists are out to get us. 
And the whole point was that in the same way that we use terrorism today as a cover for action to justify our crimes abroad, communism was being used at the time to help justify America's crimes uh, in other um, countries. So what the Americans would do was to claim that any left-wing government was an agent of Russia, which was actually almost never true. Some uh, countries and some governments turned to Russia for help when they were being threatened by the United States. So the true motive of the United States in attacking other countries that they labeled communist was actually to block independent development. That is any government or country that wanted to try to avoid being exploited by America and European and other advanced nations and to control its own resources and to use those resources for its own development, those countries were considered a threat. America wanted every country to adopt a similar economic system everywhere. And they wanted an economic system that would allow American companies to plunder the resources and to dominate trade. Now, the thing was with the poorest countries is that they created what was labeled the threat of a good example, sometimes called the domino effect. If a single poor country could demonstrate that it was capable of developing independently of the American economic system, then other countries would be tempted to copy them. And so this is why America has had sanctions on Cuba for 60 years. It doesn't want Cuba to be able to develop successfully and provide an example to other countries of how you might develop with, without the American economic system. So there are some enormous criminal activities perpetrated by the Americans throughout the whole period. So in the 1970s, America helped to train death squads and torture squads. So, and this was led by the CIA, the American Intelligence Agency, and all over um, South America, they were training torturers uh, and murderers and so on. And huge numbers of people were kidnapped and tortured and disappeared uh, in many countries. Similarly, under Ronald Reagan in Nicaragua, Grenada, El Salvador, the same sorts of things were happening. So America was helping to create torture squads and death squads. And the people they were targeting tended to be the representatives of the poor. It was unions, it was religious leaders, teachers, academics and left-wing journalists and politicians. So they were trying to make sure that the governments in those countries would uh, ultimately um, adopt the US economic system. So that was all what happened uh, back in the second half of the 20th uh, century. Now, in the last few years, the threat of Russia or China attacking us has been back on the agenda. So um, most of you will probably be aware of events labeled Russiagate, where there was a great deal of propaganda in our mainstream media telling us that the Russians were hacking into uh, the American elections and trying to manipulate American elections. Now, to whatever extent Russia did do any hacking, and it's, it's sort of contested, uh, if they did any at all, it was on a very, very small scale and it had no effect on any elections. But of course, what the mainstream media don't mention is the fact, of course, that uh, the Americans and the British and other um, other advanced nations are working with the Americans and the British. So this, this can be Canada, it can be Australia, it can be New Zealand and so on, uh, actually undermine politics 
in other countries over and over again. The CIA, particularly, uh, as we've discussed in earlier presentations, has a terrible track record of committing crimes in other countries to destroy democracy, to get America's chosen leaders uh, into power. But anyway, the threat, the possible threat posed by Russia or China is back on the agenda. So every now and again, you'll hear a news report saying that China's doing something terrible in the South China Sea and we have to protect ourselves. Whereas again, uh, what's not being discussed is the information that's come out from more critical reporters. So John Pilger is a great example of this. He made uh, a documentary a few years ago called The Coming War with China, where he explained in some detail how America is actually encircling Russia and China, building military bases and pointing weapons at Russia and China. So what China is doing is mostly a defensive response to what's going on there. So what's happened very recently uh, is that uh, Russia has uh, invaded Ukraine. Now, this came as quite a shock to a lot of people who felt that what Russia had been doing for the last few years was entirely defensive. They assumed that Russia would continue operating in an entirely defensive fashion, and that's no longer the case. So Russia has invaded Ukraine. Now, I should point out that I am anti-war in a kind of very general sense, so I'm not supporting uh, Russia's war, but I do think it's really important to understand why uh, Russia uh, has invaded Ukraine, because it's only when you understand the background to this that it becomes possible to start thinking about what the solutions might be. So the, all the evidence pretty much says that invasions of one country into another are always the worst possible crime, because it tends to be worse than anything they claim to solve. Now, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll explain this. There's a, um, an example which is not quite consistent with that. And I'll talk about that in a little while. But if we sort of assume that for now, invading other countries is, is really a terrible idea, it's a terrible crime, then there needs to be something very serious going on in Ukraine uh, for anyone to have any kind of understanding of why uh, Putin and Russia might have attacked. So in 2014, America backed a coup in Ukraine. So the existing leadership in Ukraine had been uh, had, a, had a strong relationship with Russia. The Americans didn't like that, so they created a coup. And they've done this in many countries, and they use what's called a color revolution, which our mainstream media present as a spontaneous uprising by ordinary people to say, hey, we don't like the leadership, we want a better leadership. But in fact, it's not, that's not an accurate description. It's when outside forces, particularly the US, um, support their chosen representative and they fund groups of people in the country to do protests and often to be violent, to destabilize the government and to destabilize the country. And that's exactly what happened in 2014. And we have very, very good information uh, about exactly what the American role was in getting uh, a different leader into power who was a US-backed leader. Now, various intelligence agencies produced, US intelligence agencies produced a report in 2015 saying that the Kremlin, so this is uh, in Russia, they were convinced that the United States is aiming for regime change in Russia. So it's important to take that belief 
Seriously, America has aimed for regime change in dozens and dozens of countries. That's what it does in its foreign policies when it comes across governments that will not do exactly what it wants them to do. Uh, and so the Russians are genuinely afraid that if um, America can en uh, engineer a coup in Ukraine, then the next step will it be eventually to try to engineer a coup in Russia. Now, Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia, has talked about a number of different things that are going on prior to his invasion of Ukraine. So he's talked about the way NATO, that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, has expanded. So more and more countries in Eastern Europe have been joining NATO. And this is despite the fact that a long time ago, approximately 1989, the Americans promised they would not expand NATO eastwards towards Russia. They have broken that promise. At the same time, American and European weapons are pouring into Ukraine. This was before the invasion. So America and European countries are supplying very, very modern weapons to arm Ukraine. Uh, and this includes very sophisticated drones. And uh, the Ukraine in Ukraine, there are some uh, right-wing extremists. Some people label them neo-Nazis. I, I tend to avoid using terms like Nazis and fascists because people use them uh, in different ways. But there are some violent extremists and they have been killing people in eastern Ukraine. And there's approximately, it's estimated about 15,000 people being killed in eastern Ukraine. So that's called the, the Donbass region. Uh, and so Putin has said what he would like is for the killing to end. That's the killing of people in eastern Ukraine by the extremists, but also for Ukraine not to be a part of NATO, for Ukraine to be neutral. And in fact, there are a set of agreements being discussed by uh, not only by Ukrainian leaders and Russian leaders, but also by American leaders and European leaders, which are known as the Minsk agreements. And this would be a reasonable framework to create a peaceful Ukraine. It would involve Ukraine being neutral. That means not aligned to the United States, not having lots and lots of weapons from the United States and Europe. Um, so neutral and not a part of NATO. But it turns out that the US leadership and the Ukrainian leadership are not interested in a peaceful solution. Now, those of you who who've heard my earlier presentations will be aware that time and time again, peaceful alternatives are there, but it's the American or sometimes British leadership who are not interested. So for example, with Libya, Various people tried to suggest, hey, we could do a peaceful resolution, but Hillary Clinton was not interested. And then for British, um, British listeners who are a little bit older and remember the Falklands War, people talked about possible peaceful solutions before Britain attacked the Falklands. And Maggie Thatcher was not interested. So I should, I should point out for people who are not familiar with the Falklands, the Argentinians invaded the Falklands then there was the possibility of a peaceful discussion, but Maggie Thatcher went ahead and attacked the Argentinians in the Falklands. So it's important to phrase that correctly. So what we see is a complete double standard of what goes on when Russia attacks another country compared to what happens when Britain or America 
attack somebody else. So double standing in the mainstream media. The media are putting out headlines like uh, Vlad is mad sort of thing. And yet they're not saying anything about the criminality of Britain and America in destroying Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and Syria and so on. And you see something similar in Israel and Palestine. The Israeli government harms very many Palestinians. It kills some, it tortures them, it uh, ethnically cleanses some areas and it, um, it builds settlements and it is identified as... Um, uh, the word has slipped my mind. It'll come back to me in a second. Just like South Africa, an apartheid state. I apologize for that. Um, but the mainstream media really don't make uh, much of a big deal about uh, the killing and torture of Palestinians that goes on. Uh, so it's important to recognize that there is a huge double standard in the way the media present uh, these things. And it's important also to understand the, the life that Vladimir Putin has experienced. So he came to power shortly after the West, that's led by America, but also European countries, tried to completely destroy Russia in the 1990s by forcing them to adopt extremist economic policies. When Putin came to power, he completely stabilized Russia and stopped these extreme economic uh, policies. So he's seen firsthand what happens when the West tries to destroy the economy of a nation. So in the 1990s in Russia, living standards declined faster than almost any point in any other country in history outside of wartime. So life expectancy absolutely plummeted and approximately 70 million people were thrust into poverty. So he has a genuine fear that if he does nothing, and ultimately the US gets its way and tries to destabilize Russia again in the future, it could have catastrophic consequences for Russia. Now, something that's very interesting in the media uh, at the moment is that we're seeing names and faces of people who in the past would be entirely on side with American policy coming forward to criticize America in Ukraine. And so there's uh, international foreign policy academics like John Mearsheimer, there's international development uh, experts who are firmly part of the US establishment like Jeffrey Sachs coming forward and stating quite openly that they believe that the problems in Ukraine are because of US foreign policy and they're not blaming the Russians. That's not to say they're in favor of war, they're saying actually in light of what's happened in the eight years in the run-up to this war from 1914 and the coup and so on, they fully understand why um, the Russians have responded uh, in this way. Now, I said at the beginning that in general, an invasion of another country is always worse than, it, than anything it tends to solve. But in fact, that's not always true. And there was a great example about 50 years ago. So older viewers will remember that in Cambodia, there was a leadership called Pol Pot, and he ran a government known as the Khmer Rouge. Now, the events of that period became famous in a film called The Killing Fields. But Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge committed an enormous genocide in Cambodia. Now, Vietnam is next door to Cambodia, and the Vietnamese government eventually sent their military into Cambodia to end the genocide. Now, it's important to understand 
They didn't do this entirely out of humanitarian reasons. They did it because the violence from the genocide was spilling over into Vietnam. And they felt they had to do it. They had to do the invasion to stop the violence uh, spreading further and further. But in that instance, an invasion of Cambodia by Vietnam was actually a better solution than doing nothing. And I suspect that there'll be a fair few people um, in eastern Ukraine who would say, actually, we think that what Russia has done to protect us was probably the best thing that could have happened. But we won't know what the long-term consequences of this are and the scale of violence and the scale of death and so on for some time to come. But the point about the Minsk agreement that I mentioned earlier about Ukraine not being in NATO and Ukraine becoming a neutral country is still a possible solution if the Americans and the Ukrainian leadership are prepared to enter into serious negotiations. But it's highly likely that the Russians will want to deal with the extremists who were doing the killing in eastern Ukraine anyway. So it's not certain that just sitting around a table and agreeing to the Minsk agreements at this point would work in the short term. Okay, we've covered a huge amount of material. I'm sorry I've talked a little bit longer than usual, but I felt what was going on at the moment was sufficiently important to be worth uh, talking about. So I think that's a good time to uh, to open up to uh, to discussion and uh, Q&A. Hi, Sean. Hi, can you hear me? I think I was I on can. mute then. Yes. Okay. Um, so we've not had too many questions in. Um, I think people have been discussing between themselves on the chat about different aspects of what's happening at the moment. Um, can you, Rod, first of all, tell us how did propaganda start? I know you, you like to look really deep into the history of these things. Where did it start? Was it with Goebbels during um, World War One or Two? or was it before then? So that's a really good question. So propaganda has been around, as far as we can tell, since the beginning of recorded history. And um, any time any, any leadership wanted to fight wars and so on, it was useful to demonize the enemy and to get support in their own country from their own people by misrepresenting uh, what was going on, to try to present a war or an invasion or an attack in a positive way, rather than just saying, hey, we want to control their land and we want to control their people and we want to steal their resources. So it's always been with us. But uh, World War One was probably uh, the time when um, propaganda became more systematic. So people actually started to research it. And there was a combination of things going on. People were researching war propaganda in relation to using it in World War One and um, which some people have described as the, the greatest act of mass brainwashing in, in all of human history. So everyone in Britain was brainwashed to believe that the Germans were this evil empire and they had to be dealt with. But at the same time, everybody in Germany was being brainwashed to believe that Britain was this evil empire and had to be dealt with. And so, so you had mass propaganda to get support for this war on, uh, on both sides. But as well as the war propaganda, a number of researchers started looking at corporate propaganda, the idea that companies can actually 
present information in a misleading way, uh, ultimately to make more profits. And there was a, a great a sort of very famous example of the um, uh, one of the early attempts at corporate propaganda, which was when there was a, a May Day parade in, I believe it was in New York. I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly what year this was in. And at the time, not many women smoked and cigarette companies wanted to sell more cigarettes to women. And so they got lots of uh, attractive young ladies to smoke in the May Day parade. And they presented this as an example of female emancipation. And so suddenly lots and lots of women wanted to start smoking because of what they'd seen in the May Day parade. So approximately 100 years ago or thereabouts, propaganda became a huge thing, both corporate propaganda and uh, military propaganda. And it's become more and more systematic uh, ever since. And I think particularly in um, countries like Britain and America, which in theory are democracies, although I've contested that in the past, that actually having a vote once every few years doesn't really change the policies of our, of our leadership. But where it's important for leaders to try to gain the support of the population, the propaganda systems in Britain and America are particularly sophisticated. And they use the whole mainstream media to present the same message over and over again to try to convince people uh, that their version of events uh, is the truth and to make people think that alternative versions of events are just ridiculous. And, you know, why would you believe that and this sort of thing? And it, it's complex and it's multi-layered. And in fact, in a future presentation, we'll look specifically at war propaganda more generally. But as well as presenting uh, information in misleading ways, it also involves doing things like smearing people who will challenge the information. And so when people were talking about our attacks on Syria, there was an organization called the OPCW, which investigates chemical weapons. Now, insiders from the OPCW came forward and said, actually, what's being said is just not true. And the mainstream media came out and tried to smear those individuals who very bravely come forward and tried to explain that the British and American governments were lying about what was going on in, in Syria. And, and in fact, um, Aaron Maté, who is a, an award-winning journalist with The Grey Zone, um, I've put the links to The Grey Zone in the chat because they are doing some amazing work on the current conflict. Um, and they they give both sides of the story and I find them extremely balanced. Um, so yeah, it was Aaron Maté who actually gave evidence to, I think it was the UN investigation into uh, what happened with the o OPCW um, and, you know, proving that they that the, there was the, there was this propaganda used um and you know there was no white phosphorus used uh, i can't was it white phosphorus that was used no it was a different it, gas i think it was sarin but don't quote me on that it was yeah uh, it was it was some kind of nasty chemical as anyway yeah. wasn't it where i'm sure everybody remembers the clip because it was all over the mainstream media where there was children running in and um was it the white helmets were washing their faces with hose pipes and saying that they were trying to get this stuff out of their eyes and it was it was all it was all a false flag basically is what we call a false flag these days uh it was lies propaganda 
Um, so yeah, highly recommend Aaron, who's doing some excellent work. Um, I've been watching him quite a lot. He's been interviewing a lot of academics. Um, Richard Sacqua, uh, who's a professor at uh, Kent University, who is um, uh, an expert on um, foreign policy and foreign issues, it, particularly in Russian and, and Ukraine, uh, who has been amazing um, on this um, situation. Um, I'm going to go to a question from Prue Stothard now. Um, she asks, how can we find out what is happening on the ground in the Ukraine? Russia today has been banned um, and obviously other uh, news channels have been banned. My feeling is that MSM aren't giving us the truth. Um, so one of my things prove to you would be to watch as many different sources as you can, listen to as many experts and academics that you can um, and you hopefully somewhere in the middle there will get some sort of truth. Rod, what would your advice be on that? So, yeah, so it's incredibly difficult to get the truth and uh, just sort of talk about a few related uh, issues. So my, my general guidance is firstly, never watch the mainstream press. You know that when it comes to wartime with British and American mainstream press, they are not attempting to get anywhere close to the truth. Now, I should point out once in a blue moon, they, they will have a guest on who, who does say something that, that is a bit more honest. And so, in fact, the BBC had one of the people I mentioned earlier, a guy called Jeffrey Sachs, who is uh, a little bit more honest. But that's a kind of rare thing. You're kind of lucky if you catch that person. So in general, find as many alternative sources and ideally critical sources uh, as you possibly can. Now, these days, in theory, we have what should be a great resource, and that is citizen reporting from war zones. And in fact, there are quite a lot of people now trying to blog from the war zone, and they're citizens who live in Ukraine. Now, this might work if you're lucky and come across the right one. It's not something I've yet sort of researched to see who's saying what and so on, but you have to be a little bit wary. What we discovered with Syria, was that the British government particularly is now investing huge amounts of money in what it calls PSYOPs or psychological operations. And it's trying to control the narrative uh, on the internet. And as part of doing that, it was funding citizen journalists in Syria who were putting forward the pro-US, pro-UK version of events. And so that is the narrative that will tend to dominate on the internet from citizen journalists in a war zone. So I haven't yet seen any evidence saying that Britain is doing that in Ukraine, but it seems to me highly unlikely that they're not. So you have to be a little bit cautious that you're not just finding an alternative source of British and American propaganda, which looks more genuine, but isn't. The other thing is with citizen journalism, the point you made about getting a wide range of sources is incredibly important. So Ukraine is almost like two separate nations. It's got the West, which is very kind of oriented towards Europe and America, and it's got Eastern Ukraine, which is very oriented towards Russia. So in the East, a lot of people are Russian speaking, in the West, much less so. And if you get a citizen journalist from the West, you'll get their perspective, which would be very critical of Russia, if you get a citizen journalist in the East, you are much more likely 
to get a version of events that's very supportive of Russia and much more critical of the Ukrainian government. And it can be very difficult to tell which you're getting. And at the same time, as these people are forming their own opinions based on what they're seeing. So some people might actually be seeing fighting outside of their windows and so on, or they might actually be moving from a city uh, into the countryside to escape the worst fighting. Um, they're also receiving propaganda from their own government. And so it, when I talk to people from Israel and I say, what do you think about what your government does in Palestine? Many of them have no idea. They really believe the propaganda of their own government that actually their government's not doing anything wrong. Just in the same way that British and American people are bombarded with propaganda, Israeli people are bombarded with propaganda. But also, I have no doubt it will be the case that Ukrainian people are bombarded with the propaganda and Russian people. Now, I'm sure will be experiencing propaganda as well. And it can become very, very difficult for people to kind of separate themselves from their sort of nationalistic impulses, their desire to be on side with their government uh, and, and so on. So in the same way that what you see in Britain is a mainstream press that is completely uncritical of British and American war crimes, over in Ukraine, you almost certainly have a mainstream press that's very uncritical of their government's crimes, and you probably have something similar uh, in, uh, in Russia. So, uh, you can find sensible voices out there, but you have to look hard. One or two of the people that I mentioned earlier, so John Mearsheimer particularly, who's a member basically of the U.S. foreign policy establishment. He's normally completely on side with the U.S. government. When an insider comes forward and criticizes their own government in this way, that's probably something well worth listening to. So John Mearsheimer has done a number of presentations and interviews on different sites lately where you can hear his views. You can I mentioned Jeffrey Sachs. And then among the people that I would say are very good at criticizing the US and British governments much more generally, there's a former CIA analyst called uh, Ray McGovern. And I think his analysis is extremely good at looking, looking behind the scenes. And in fact, there was a recent interview uh, on a, a program that I'd never heard of, but it had both John Mearsheimer and Ray McGovern on the same chat show, essentially both on the same side, which I suspect is a unique moment in the history of kind of debate and, and so on. So when you, when you hear that there are insiders in the US government who are really critical of US policy in relation to this, then that gives you a pretty good indication that the US and the Ukrainian government have been doing things that are seriously wrong in the run-up to these recent events. Mm. I'd also highly recommend Oliver Stone's documentary called Ukraine on Fire, which talks about the context behind the colour revolutions back in 2014. And there's some real eye-opening um, aspects uh, to the colour re revolutions with actors from uh, the democratic um um party who went over there to talk to uh to leaders um namely victoria newland mike uh, was it mike kane uh joe biden and they went over there to promise them the earth that nato would be there to look after them they would do everything to protect them um and now eight years later they're back in power 
and it's the same actors who are who have been pushing um, for for this conflict. Victoria Newland uh, is in there again as the. Um, oh, I did write it down here somewhere. Let me find it. Um, she is currently uh, the, an American diplomat serving as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. And she is married to a chap called Robert Kagan. Um, I don't know if you've heard of um, an NGO or think tank called the Project for New American Century, Rod. I have, yeah, um, a notorious organisation, yes. They are notorious and they basically... Um, write foreign policy for the US government. And back in 1997, um, they wrote a policy um, to, to, to affect regime change in seven countries over seven years. And they were namely Iraq, Syria, Libya, Somalia, Iran, and a couple of others, I can't remember, North Korea, I think one was. And um, you know, we, we and that was before um, what happened in uh, it was before 9-11, you know, and very quickly after 9-11, after all of those things came into effect. So if you put two and two together, you know, it does make you wonder whether they were enacting those policies that were put forward by the Project for New American Century. And indeed, um, there's a very famous clip that you can find online from uh, General Wesley Clark, uh, where, where he actually talks about it when he was given a memo from upstairs saying that they were going to um, invade seven countries over seven years. Um, and how shocked he was. And he was like, we're going to invade Iraq. Why? What have they ever done to us? You know, really shocked about it. So, yeah, very, very interesting, very interesting actors in play at the moment. Like I said, Robert Kagan was the founder of the Project for New American Century, and he's married to Victoria Newland, who is the current US Under Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. So very, very, very questionable. Those, those um, are really good points, actually. I watched Ukraine on Fire, so the Oliver Stone documentary, a couple of days ago, and it doesn't cover the most recent events because it was made no. a few years ago. But actually, for anybody who wants to understand the background to what's been going on, it's probably the best introductory guide that I've found so far. And I found it very easily. Just search for Ukraine on Fire, Oliver Stone, and you can find free versions on the on the internet and it's uh, it's absolutely uh, fascinating and it rather it's, i think it's essential viewing at the moment because people don't remember you know it's it's surprising how quickly we forget things happening i mean you know it will have been all over the news at the time um but we forget um and the amount of people i've spoken to who say Oh, how do you know that happened in 2014? Well, it did. It's a historical fact. It, it, you know, it did happen. There are news clips out there that prove this. Um, there's also um, uh, recorded phone call between Victoriat, who was the um, who was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine at that time, and they're having this conversation about who should be in power in Ukraine. They were talking about, oh, who do you think, you know, they were talking to different opposition groups and discussing, you know, do you think, um, do you think Kalinsky will be, Klitschko will be good or, you know, this other guy will be good. And um, I, I, in fact, I've, I've found the transcript, which is available on the BBC website. 
and I've posted it in the chat if anyone's interested in going to have a look at the transcript of that conversation very interesting and she says f the u the eu which was also interesting yeah. um let's go to another question from kevin clegg does rod have any quick tips on how to identify and discern propaganda from facts particularly when it comes to social media where the content we see and share is often unsourced so i don't think there's any instant way to do it and this is one of the reasons that propaganda is so effective that, uh, in fact, the vast majority of people don't have the time or the inclination to go and do the digging to the extent that you have to do it to get any real idea on what's going on when there is so much propaganda around. So it, it just takes a, a lot of what you might call legwork. You just have to dig, you have to think, and you have to question, and everything you hear, you have to say, well, does that make sense? So, for example, if the, the mainstream media in Britain is saying, oh, Vladimir Putin's just insane. So I've, there's an article a couple of weeks ago saying, oh, he's insane because, because of the lockdowns with COVID. And uh, one of the things we'll, we'll discuss in a, in a future session about war propaganda specifically is that there's, a, there's a, an Italian book that I'll, um, that's come out. It's never been fully translated into English, but parts of it have been translated. And the research has looked at propaganda for the last hundred years and has listed 10 basic principles of war propaganda. And one of them always is to demonize your enemy, to portray them either as the devil or insane uh, or just, just kind of going mad. And that's exactly what happens. So I think with what um, the mainstream media put out, it's usually, once you understand that an awful lot of what they're putting out is press releases from governments and companies, and when it comes to uh, Ukraine, forget the sort of corporate propaganda, it's press releases from governments. And so it's what the British and American governments want you to believe. So an awful lot of it is highly likely to be a distorted uh, version of events, which is why I say there's just no point in watching it. In fact, every time you watch the mainstream news or read a mainstream newspaper, it makes you less informed because a lot of the time, particularly if it's a TV program, you've got the news on for half an hour in the background, you'll sort of absorb things un unconsciously. And they'll say, oh, people are saying that Vladimir Putin's mad. Well, all your friends saw the same news broadcast. You'll sit and chat with your friends and your family tomorrow and say, do you think he's mad? And they'll be saying, yeah, I think he's mad. So you'll all convince yourselves that he's mad. And in fact, this is happening in a lot of European countries at the moment. So Finland and Estonia, lots of other countries are all saying, oh, my God, are we next? But in fact, all the evidence indicates very clearly that he's he's not mad at all. In fact, of international politicians at a high levels, all the evidence is that he's one of the most calculating uh, of all of them. And he kind of understands how things work and, and what to do and so on. And so the the propaganda art to me becomes reasonably obvious once you understand the mainstream stuff. When you're well, looking I think I think what started that, Rod, sorry to interrupt, was no. there was an interview with Gondolisa Rice. And people may remember Gondolisa Rice was part of the Iraq war. Um, she was in uh, George Bush Jr.'s um cabinet. Uh, in his government and uh, she she was a key player in the Iraq war which we all know was you know it was it was sold to us that with they had weapons of mass destruction and they could 
you know, they could get to us within 15 minutes or whatever it was. And we know that that was a lie. We know that, that they took us to war on an absolute lie. So now they roll out Gondolisa Rice. I'm surprised they've not rolled out Tony Blair, actually. They've rolled her out and she said, oh, well, I, I think he's gone a bit mad, um, Putin, because he's nothing like the man that I used to deal with. He's he's changed a lot. I think he's got long COVID and he seems to be really paranoid. And and since that interview, it, it's the press has caught on to it and it's people are sort of rolling with it now. And, and I could see from that interview um, that this is the way it was going to go. Putin's mad and blah de blah and like you say I, I think you know my opinion is I don't know the guy but my opinion is that he's you know and from what other people world leaders have said is he's he's been a very well respected leader he's very calculated um he knows what he's doing and I don't think we should be under any illusions that this man knows exactly what he's doing and where he's going um so you know people some you know might call that mad could be but I don't think he's mad as in he's got you know dementia is Joe Biden mad Rod you know <laughs> so I think it may be quite likely that Joe Biden has sort of dementia or senility or whatever they label it these days and what what always interests me just looking back through history uh, is that if you look at people like Ronald Reagan and uh, in Britain it was famous when he was president of the United States that the uh, the TV program Spitting Image did a series called The President's Brain is Missing. Oh, yeah, and, and <laughs> you, you know, you couldn't help but laugh that he really didn't seem to have any idea what was going on. And then we had um, a, one of the one of the British conservative politicians, one of the ladies went over there and uh, I'm trying to think whose name it was. And um, she didn't even though she was talking about an area and she said Russia has no right to control that area. But it was an area that's already part of Russia. And she didn't know that. And you, you realise that we have an awful lot of politicians who are completely clueless. Sounds now, a bit like Liz Truss, actually. That's who I was thinking of. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm sure behind the scenes, there are some very intelligent people in both Britain and America in the intelligence services, in the bureaucracy and so on. And they know they know what's what. Um, but I, I just think it's such a shame that we seem to have such uh, a group of absurd politicians who in theory are meant to be helping us make decisions and so on. Whereas in fact, what their role seems to be more and more these days just a charade. Yeah, uh, just a pretense of uh, of democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And and going back to what you were saying about you know um, these uh, you know cyber warfare, basically, you know we are in a massive uh, war, uh, cyber war at the moment. Um, I think we have been for a few years now. Um, going back to the anti-Semitism smears um, on Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I know Chris Williamson. Um, he went and knocked, he found out about the Institute of Statecraft um, that were perpetrating um, a lot of these smears. Um, and we also have the 77, Unit 77th Brigade. Um, you can Google that, it will tell you exactly who they are. Um, and, um, you know, they are 
in charge of cyber warfare. So, you know, it's going on. Um, there are, um, we know there are people who work for Facebook and Twitter who are ex um, 77th Brigade um, employees. Um, some of them are ex Unit 8200, which is the Israeli version of, um, that's their cyber warfare unit. Um, and I'm sure Russia and America have got, they, everyone's got them these days, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And I think it's only going to get worse. I think that um, governments have realised how much they can use the internet and social media particularly to manipulate people's opinions. And I think there's probably a drift away a little bit, particularly among younger people from the mainstream press and TV news and so on, uh, towards social media sites to get their information. And so governments are starting to realise how important it is to, to control the, uh, what we say, control the narrative, so control the main kind of version of events that is discussed on social media. And I think it will get worse and worse. And what we saw with COVID is that the um, media companies, Twitter and YouTube particularly, were censoring opinions that contradicted the mainstream narrative on a huge scale. And uh, th this, with war, this is only going to, Get, uh, get worse and worse. So I think uh, it's really important for people to um, put a little bit of effort into uh, doing their own research and thinking about you know, who they trust, who are the informed commentators, who are the commentators who are trying to be more objective. I was really uh, pleased when you mentioned the grey zone. I think probably at the moment, in terms of Ukraine, they have tried harder than anybody else to get really good honest, critical people to interview. Uh, and uh, if, if you watch their recent interviews, that will give you uh, a reasonable understanding of what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what, one of the things that um, is confusing me at the moment, which I don't know is true or whether it's propaganda from one side or another, is the story that's broken the last couple of days about the uh, biological warfare labs that they found in apparently there's over 30 that they found in Ukraine holding uh, diseases such as the plague um, um, what's that um, what was that other one that they like to send as a white powder in envelopes um, anthrax. anthrax that's the one yeah sorry my 50 odd year old brain's not working <laughs> so uh, yeah so is that true or not? Russia claim um, that they have got um, documents to back this up, um, and yet the USA are denying it. How do we know what's the truth? So uh, I first heard about this a few days ago, and I haven't I haven't followed it up. But in fact, uh, somebody mentioned it this morning that somebody now has a documented evidence from the US government that that's, this is the case. So up until today, I think it was probably sort of speculation and so on. But uh, I saw a video clip earlier today, which was an American spokesperson. I think it probably was Victoria Newland, but I wouldn't, I couldn't be 100% certain on that, admitting that uh, there are biological weapons laboratories in Ukraine, very close to the Russian border, and what she was saying was that they're afraid the Russians will will capture it. So I think this probably is true. 
But again, you, we'd have to just kind of check and, and verify. But I think once it gets to the point where an American spokesperson is saying an official sort of committee hearing or something that what's going on, then then probably that's as good as, as evidence that as you'll ever get. Do, do you think that'll be a game changer? You mean in the sense that people's opinions would change because they heard that America had the labs or do you mean in some other way? Well, just um, the, the everyone at the moment, well, there's a lot of people at the moment who are, you know, they're, they're putting the Ukrainian flags on their social media. Um, and obviously that everyone's very concerned about the Ukrainian people. And I'm, I'm hoping it's the, it's the innocent people that they are thinking of because it's the innocent people in war that get hurt, whether that's Ukrainian or Russian. Um, you know, my heart hurts for everybody who uh, gets involved in war. And in fact, you know, I, I've just been up to Preston um, this afternoon to see my son, um, because it was his birthday and I couldn't believe that petrol well diesel is £1.90 a litre now and this is going to get worse as um, oil uh, production reduces um, it's going to get more and more expensive so we are going to get hit we've just been hit with a huge hike in energy prices um, now that petrol and oil is being affected we're going to you know food's going to go up again energy prices are going to go up again um, you know so it, again, it's always the poorest that will get hit hardest in situations like this. And my heart hurts for everybody. Um, and I am completely anti-war and I'm not on anybody's side. Um, however, with regards to these labs, will it be a game changer in the way people are perceive this conflict? Because a lot of people that I've spoken to, I've had a lot of twos and fro's on social media with people. They actually don't believe the colour revolutions happened in 2014. They don't believe that the Donbass area used to be part of Russia and that it's mainly ethnic Russians that live in that area of the Ukraine. They don't believe that there is a Nazi battalion called the Aztov, uh, the, the Azov. Yeah, the Azov Battalion, yeah. um, who wear Nazi insignias on their uniforms. And I'm saying this for educational purposes in case this gets reviewed uh, by YouTube. Um, and this, this is fact, you know, and people say, oh, well, where's your evidence? How do you know it's fact? How do you know this is not propaganda? Will it be a game changer now that these labs have been found? And, um, and if they are seen to be owned by America, and being operated in in Ukraine, how do you think that might play out with the conflict um, with Russia? Is that going to make things worse? Will that drag NATO into it? Because obviously, you know, Russia's not going to be happy that the US are behind this. What what what's your thoughts on that? Well, so that's a good question, and uh, I'm never very good at actually predicting how the mass of the population will react to information. So. Um... I, I can never tell for sure. I, I'm always hopeful that, that it will wake, you know, any bit of new information will wake people up and they go, oh, my God, sort of have a head slapping moment and say, I can't believe I fell for it or I, you know, believe the, the, the propaganda and so on. But uh, unfortunately, that doesn't seem to happen very, very often. And in fact, we already have quite good information about what's been going on, certainly for the last eight years, because um, because this is a European 
um, sort of theatre of war rather than being in the, the Middle East. We actually have an, a reasonably independent organisation called the OSCE, so the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and they have observers in eastern Ukraine, and they have been documenting in some detail what has been going on over the previous few years. And so they've been documenting these brutal killings being carried out by uh, these uh, right-wing extremists and, and so on. Um, so uh, it is unfortunate that so many people just say, where's your evidence, you know, uh, and so on. And when the evidence is actually very, very good in this particular um, instance. Uh, so I'm not optimistic that this one bit of information about biological weapons uh, research establishments will make a difference. But but who knows? It may be that over time that and other information as it comes out uh, will uh, get the, the population to, to be more critical of uh, sort of Western policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It, it kind of worries me because... Um... I think it, it is blatantly now showing that the, you know, if it is true that it will be blatantly showing that the US is deeply involved um, in, in this conflict in, in Ukraine and Russia. Um, so my worry is that um, it will, you know, things will unfold um, further in Europe. Um, I know um, Adam Schiff said in a speech, uh, this clip's been widely shared as well, um, that he, you know, they've admitted um, they're going to be fighting Russia over in Ukraine rather than over here, as in in the states. So they'd rather fight them over there and and not in in the, on their own home ground. So it's a it's a worry for me. Um, yeah, in fact, there was there's a very famous quote from a, a an American um, general. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. Long time ago, he said, we fought World War One in Europe. We fought World War Two in Europe. And if the Europeans are dumb enough to let us, we'll fight World War Three in Europe. And um, there was a really good interview, again, on the grey zone with an economist called Michael Hudson. He isn't just an economist. He's also a historian and he's very interested in uh, in world events. And he thinks that uh, probably European countries are only about five years away of recognizing that actually a future connected only to the United States is not going to work and that actually the world is changing and they'll, European governments will start to recognize that their interests do lie in better relationships with Russia and China. But he says they're not there yet. We're still a few years away from that moment. But that would be great if people really did start to recognize that actually we don't want a US-dominated, ultra-violent world. We would like to actually work much more cooperatively. Uh, th then that, that would be immensely positive. But there's a lot that can happen in the next few years. Definitely. I just want to ask our viewers a question, see if anybody knows the answer to this. How many US bases do you think are surrounding China? Just put, just put a number in the chat. Let, let's see what people think. How many US bases are there surrounding China? What do you think? Uh, I'll give you a few seconds to uh, type a number in. So whilst they're thinking, I'm very impressed with your understanding of the Ukraine crisis. It sounds like you've been doing a fair bit of research lately, Sean. I, I have. I've been, I've been watching a lot. And, and my starting point was the Oliver Stone 
um, video. Um, and it was amazing um, to give that context um, and to um, and then to start listening to, you know, I've, I've listened to the Grey Zone. Uh, I listened to the Jimmy jo Jimmy Dore show. He has a lot. Um, he's an American comedian, has a YouTube channel, and he has a lot of great academics on his show. Uh, Max Blumenthal and uh, Aaron Maté of the Grey Zone, fantastic. They've done some brilliant interviews with academics. Um, and um, yeah, just I think what it is is I keep an open mind on these things. I don't take sides. I keep a very open mind, um, and I think that's very very important. Okay, so we've got some numbers coming through. Um, have you any idea what the answer is to this question? Well, I remember Rob? researching a few years ago that in total around the world, they have at least 800. And that number may have increased a little bit in the last few years. Right, so okay. I've seen a range of numbers and I would guess that the 200 is probably the closest. Okay, so we've got Lizzie says 48, uh, Jason likes Lenin 80, Diana Isilus uh, 200, Peter Forrest 1700, uh, Prue says 50, Kevin says 70, Emily says 300, Kevin says 300. Now I'm just going to uh, Google it because you, you've made me question what my answer was. Oh no, I could um, be wrong. If it's if it's much less, then uh... okay. So John Pilger has been studying this area as um, as you know over the years, and he's done a great documentary on the the US surrounding China. And from memory, um, I'm pretty sure he said there was 700 bases. So I'm going to Google that now, and I'm I just going to. That's a worldwide total. I thought it was just around China. Let me just Google it. Um, how many bases US China? Oh, hang on now. 400. There you go. So China is surrounded by 400 US military bases. That was as of 2017. So that is a lot. That is an awful lot. <laughs> it is a lot, lot of military bases, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, in the future, who knows what might happen with China? Yeah, um, oh, Diana wants a prize. Diana, you've just got a mention from us on uh, live on our YouTube channel. Well done, Diana, for, for getting the closest to that. <laughs> well done. Um, I don't think there's any more questions coming in now. Um, Rod, what do you think would be the the next step um, in this conversation that we've been having tonight. Well, so I think the uh, if you if you look at the discussions that have been happening, it's very interesting that because of things like Twitter, suddenly everyone becomes a foreign policy expert, and so lots of people are saying, "Hey, shouldn't we have a no-fly zone over Ukraine?" Now, when uh, somebody kind of sitting at home talks about a no-fly zone. They think, hey, that's that's kind of harmless and innocent, isn't it? But actually, if you look at the analysts to explain what a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine would mean, it would mean the West and America getting massively involved in the fighting in Ukraine. It would massively increase the scale of it and probably would completely increase the level of destruction. So um, it's important, I would have said, that any time anybody gets a chance to talk about it, what we want is for this conflict to end 
as quickly as possible with the minimum loss of life. So what we actually need, which is the same as with every single war that's ever taken place, is for people in power and influence to sit down and talk instead of fighting. And that requires that the Americans are prepared to sit down and talk, the Ukrainians are prepared to sit down and talk, the Russians have been trying to say for years that they want to sit down and talk, but nobody else has wanted to. They've had some meetings with the Europeans, and I think there are some European leaders who would like to sit down and talk. And it's important to say that must be the way forward rather than any attempt at escalation, such as supplying weapons to one side or the other. And, so, and, and indeed, we, want... we haven't even spoken about the Minsk um, Accords, have we? Well, I, I mentioned them very, very briefly. So this is what the Putin would... Uh, like as a solution. So the idea would be that Ukraine would become a neutral territory and we wouldn't be pouring weapons into the, the region and it would end up effectively becoming what's often called a buffer state. So a neutral state between Russia and um, the the West. And, and so I think a, a negotiated solution is perfectly plausible um, depending on the extent to which Putin wants to focus on that or the extent to which he wants to focus on capturing the people, the extremists who have been doing the killing in eastern Ukraine. If he if he focuses too much on dealing with the extremists, then I think it could be a very, very serious war. If he's prepared to actually just focus on allowing a negotiated settlement and the Americans and the Ukrainians are prepared to do that, then I think actually you, it could be resolved quite easily. But it requires that enough people with power and influence pursue that course mm. and I just want to finish off with a little personal story my own experience of propaganda um, I was a holiday rep as some of you know um, back in 1990 I was based over in Cyprus um, during the sort of run-up towards the um, the Q8 conflict and um, we were sat on it was a, a Sunday, it was our day off, we were sat sunbathing, we got all the newspapers there and we were sharing them out amongst us and looking at the news. And there was a, a, a picture, front page spread that they carried on almost every single paper, it was the same one, and it was a picture of people being evacuated and they were all trotting up this, uh, the you know, the, um, the staircase into the aircraft. And um, it, the big caption on the front was um, holidaymakers evacuated from Cyprus. So we were all looking at each other saying, well, that's not true. <laughs> you know, we're all sat here on the beach, sunbathing, having a jolly old time. You know, there was absolutely nothing happening in Cyprus. Yes, there were reporters from all over the world who were based in Cyprus who were reporting on what was happening in Kuwait and Iraq. Um, but obviously they didn't have a clue. But back in the 1990s, we didn't have the ability to check the metadata on uh, on photographs and things like that. So this, this picture could have come from anywhere. Nowadays, we do have the ability to check the metadata on, on pictures that are posted out. And I think the media have been tripped up a few times um, in the last few weeks with things that they've posted from the Syria war, um, you know, from, from what's happened in Palestine. And they're trying to pass it, as, pass it off as what's happening in Ukraine. Um, so, so you can easily check um, where these pictures are coming from. Um, so that's it from, from us, I think, tonight, Rod. I want to thank you so much for this extended edition of um, 
Resistance TV and Elephant in the Room. It will be available um, on podcast on Friday, I believe. Um, I want to thank everybody for the contributions in the chat. And don't forget to leave us a like on your way out. If you're new here, subscribe to the channel and please do leave us a comment. It all helps with the algorithms and it helps to get our news out there to everybody. So thank you once again. See you next week. Good night. Yeah.